I love the talking guy show. I hear two guys talking. 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 Two guys talking are here. I hear two guys talking. Scams are one of the most dangerous threats today, especially when it comes to our elders. As the number of victims and money taken continues to skyrocket, realize that there is hope. ScammerCast is your frontline battlefield for getting educated on the most recent scams, but also how to defend against them. Join us as we detail the processes, the traps, and the solutions to help us all hammer the scammers! Hammer the scammers. It's time for the ScammerCast. Here are your hosts, Curtis Bailey and Art Maines. Hi everyone, welcome back. This is Curtis Bailey, your co-host here at ScammerCast.com. And this is Art Mange, your other co-host at ScammerCast.com. And it's not very often that we come across folks who represent a kind of complete coverage of a situation. And that's in part why we're so delighted to be talking today with our friends Carolyn Rosenblatt and Dr. Nicole Davis from AgingParents.com and AgingInvestor.com. Well, that's so true, Art. You know, one of the, the biggest concerns I hear among my clients day in, day out is as our parents get older and older, they face concerns about making the money last. And when you overlay issues of dementia and cognitive impairment, cognitive decline, that issue and that concern becomes more acute. And families often have a very hard time communicating about these issues. Some people may not believe that mom or dad is really having the problems that they're having. Some people may have their own agendas about wanting the money now rather than using it for care. And and that's, I think, a part of what's so great about what uh, Carolyn and Dr. Nicole Davis are doing is that they are really looking at also the family dynamics and how to enhance family communication and cooperation as part of their work. So true. I, I think today's episode will will dive deep and be a great conversation with lots of tools and resources that you can use out there to help your aging parent. Sponsored by Western Union and Midwest Trust. Dr. Davis and Carolyn Rosenblatt, welcome. Thank you so much. We're yep. happy to be here. Yeah, we're happy to be with you. Fantastic. Carolyn, let's start with you. Would you introduce yourselves to our audience and, and tell us a little bit about how you got to, uh, to do this kind of work? Well, I'm a registered nurse. I practiced nursing for 10 years, and it turned out that most of my clientele were older people. As you probably can imagine, the older population consumes most of the health care dollars, so mm. that's where I spent most of my time. Right. I was in nursing homes and hospitals for the beginning and then did a lot of home care work, which brought me in touch with families quite a lot for the bulk of my career. So nursing was not really something that paid very well back in the day, mm. and I looked at the longevity of my work life and decided that maybe it would be good to do something else, too, because I couldn't see nursing, which didn't even give me health insurance, being the greatest place for my future. <laughs> right. Yeah. Carolyn, what led you uh, to go into the nursing field from the beginning? I was inspired by my grandmother. She was a nurse. She was probably the most important person in my life growing up. My mother was mentally ill, which really taught me about caregiving from a very early age. Right. And Sounds my grandmother like was a very steady figure very kind, very loving, and I watched her age really well. She did it right. So all of that together really thought made me think that it would be a great thing to do what she had done, which was to become a nurse. And she encouraged it. So I went to nursing school immediately. That's where I graduated from college, and I started practicing right away and loved it. And it was really only the economics and the status of nursing at that time that caused me to change careers. But nursing enabled me to get through law school because that's how I supported myself during that time. <laughs> yeah, sure, well, sure. absolutely. You know, it, it's amazing. As you were describing your grandmother, I'm, I was seeing my grandmother as well, virtually the same story. She was a nurse, uh, and I ended up starting uh, uh, when I was in college and in law school uh, as a paramedic. Uh, I enjoyed the emergency medicine side, and so I did that to pay my way through law school. So very interesting uh, parallel. 
We have that in common, don't we? We yeah. know the struggle of not having any money. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. For sure. Uh, high enjoyment, but no money. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. But then once I got out of law school and worked for firms for the first couple of years or so, I realized that it would be great to be on my own because I was having a family by that time and did go on my own and practiced in the field of personal injury for 25 years. So I met a lot of people who were struggling and recovering and impaired and used the nursing background, of course, on a daily basis. But it gave me a perspective of what it's like to live with long-term problems and the economic impact, which was not so visible from the nurse's vantage point. Sure, sure. And putting those two things together when I retired from the practice of law and started AgingParents.com with Dr. Davis here, that was really what I thought would be a way to use both of those backgrounds. And in the consulting business, you hear, you see everything. Yeah, people I'm come sure. to you with every kind of problem imaginable about older people, their family members, their neighbors, whoever it is. And indeed, we have been able to put our three professions together with what we're doing now. Yes, Mikol, tell us a little bit about you and, and your work. Now, I have the idea that you are a clinical psychologist. Is that correct? I'm a clinical psychologist. I decided at age seven, actually, I was going to be a orthopedic surgeon. At age and, seven, uh, there okay. weren't too many kids on my block when I was growing <laughs> up that wanted to be orthopedic surgeons. But my next door neighbor uh, had a major influence on me, and I decided from that day on that's what I was going to do. I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon, even though I didn't know exactly what they did. <laughs> right, right. When I found out all the all the hacking and sawing and blood that was involved uh, when I was in college pre-med that was going to happen if I pursued my dream, I decided that maybe it was time to uh, do a reset and consider other options. At that time, I had a great interest in psychology and decided that that was a better calling for me than uh, my first intention. So yes, I went through school, finished my doctorate, University of San Francisco in clinical psychology, started out initially working primarily with children, mm. uh, had a great interest in working in pediatrics and worked with kids for, for many years during my career. But the strange thing happened in working with children is that they got older and then they became adolescents. So I found myself specializing in working with adolescents and then they grew up and became young adults and I found myself working with young adults, and they started having families. I started working with their families, and then lo and behold, they started dealing with their parents who were getting older, and they were dealing with some very, very thorny issues yeah. about having enough money to care for their parents and dealing with the care and having to deal with their siblings that they hadn't talked to for years and years about mom or dad getting old. Sure. And uh, that was the beginning of AgingParents.com that Carolyn and I and a third partner formed a number of years ago. And during the scope of the work that we did in working with boomers who were caring with their aging parents, we learned very quickly that they didn't have much of a relationship with their parents primarily in terms of knowing much about their parents' finances. Yeah, yeah. And that became more and more disconcerting to them because they were starting to realize that the burden financially was potentially going to fall on them to take care of their parents. Right. I know I'm a boomer myself, and, and my parents' generation, you didn't talk about money. Uh, they you didn't even that. talk right. about it. You got it. Yeah, you know, my I'm not a boomer. I'm a guess. I'm a Generation Xer. You must be right on the edge. I'm though. right on the edge. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, just about to turn fifty. Uh, but in any event, uh, even my parents, after I graduated law school, for crying out loud, they wouldn't talk to me for quite some time. <laughs> I, I again, maybe it's just a generational thing. They just kept that kind of information close to the vest. Well, they did, and it was influenced a lot by the Great Depression. And yeah, you have I think to remember so. what a devastating effect sure. had on the generation that lived through the Great Depression. There were people jumping out of windows because of financial ruin. Mm -hmm. Families who had or didn't have money were really embarrassed to discuss it with people who were the opposite. Right. And there was a secrecy culture that pervades to this day for the people who are still alive from that generation. I see and that. not talking about money is really the norm. The, the, and the fear it rude to discuss it is also the norm. So we are dealing with that as people now are living longer than they ever did in their parents' generation. Very true. Boy, the fear is just, the fear factor, if you will, the emotion is so strong around money, isn't it? 
intense. Yeah, it really intense. is. And it motivates people in some very strange ways. <laughs> I agree. People who are depression-era survivors either spending recklessly because they were so deprived in a younger mm-hmm. day and it left that imprint, or they are so stingy about spending, even on themselves. Mm-hmm. Fear of loss pervades their thinking, right. and that carries to the end of their lives. And it also influences their unwillingness to look at the need that they may have to spend money for care. The strange thing that we found in our work at Aging Parents was that the boomers didn't know what their parents had. Right. And the only person that really actually knew what mom or dad's financial picture was all about was that if, in fact, they had a financial advisor or a wealth manager or a stockbroker that had been involved in managing their retirement funds, they were the ones that knew what was going on. Tell us a little bit more about AgingParents.com. Uh, you mentioned that you started the project a few years ago. So give our, give our listeners a little more detail about what the impetus was for AgingParents.com to get started and where it is today. Part of it was just the interest in working with elders, which we both had had for quite some time. For me, it was for my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, okay, here I am retiring from a litigation practice that extended over 27 years. I didn't want to be in combat anymore. That was enough. Mm. But I wanted to be able to use what I had learned about the law to be useful. And the nursing background helped me every single day of legal practice for those that entire length of time. I'll bet. Thought, There's got to be a way to braid these two things together somehow. Maybe we can just start answering questions. Maybe we can just be consultants. Mm. And we did some research, and we discovered the partner that we had initially who has since passed away. He had begun the same effort some time prior to when we discovered it. And the name AgingParents.com had actually been started by him. Mm. And we acquired that and began to cooperate with him to produce videos and other things. And I had started to write my book, which issued from people just asking me questions. I thought, well, they can't all afford to pay lawyers' fees to talk to me. Let me just write this down. So all of that together was how agingparents.com got started. It was really to be a resource for people who didn't want to cast about the internet looking blindly for something they needed and not know where to go. We wanted to be a one-stop shop, so to speak, so that people could get a good answer in a short time to these multi-headed problems of legal, health care, emotional, and financial issues that they face with their aging loved ones. But it was also indicative of what we saw within our culture that people don't plan ahead. Mm. They don't plan for loss of capacity of any sort. They don't plan ahead on so many ways. And what we were finding was that at the point of which that the son or daughter was called from New York because mom or dad had fallen down and broken their hip and and they weren't going to be able to return to a five-story walk-up, and what are you going to do? Are you going to have them come live with you? Many of the folks that we were dealing with were in great crisis because they hadn't thought about this potential and hadn't done any planning, and all of a sudden they were smack dab in the middle of the crisis, and they were failing, failing about trying to figure out what they were going to be able to do with all the multiple decisions that they had to make, and they were ill-prepared. And we really saw that there was this great gap of information that if people are prepared, if they have the right documents in place, if they've had those difficult conversations with, with their parents, if they've talked to their siblings about how we're going to work together going forward, if they've done some of that work, when the eventual happens, people handle the transition in a much better way. Miko, I, I know you have worked with many, many folks over the course of your career as well as with the project here at AgingParents.com, and I'm interested. Uh, this is a question that we could probably talk about for the next four hours or more, but what's your perspective on why it's so difficult for people to engage in appropriate planning? I think it has to do with the fact that in our culture, people aren't comfortable dealing with death. Mm. And we don't want to talk about death. We want to think about death. It's a very youth-oriented culture. And I think to be able to sit down and talk with your parents about their potential passing is a very uncomfortable thing for most people to to bring up. I can see that. 
Uh, I think that part of it also has to do with our own issues within ourselves of our own fears of our own deaths. And I think it may be steps along that way, too. I mean, I I think you are right on when you talk about it it has to do with the ultimate fear of death. But I think it's also the fear of growing impairment as we think about cognitive impairment or having to give up the car keys or or just no longer being able to take care of yourself. I think those are steps along the way. Do you think that, too? Oh, I think it's a big part of Sure, Sure, it's not just dying. You're right. Uh, It has a lot to do with loss of independence and becoming dependent. I watched that in my father. My father lived until he was 89, and my father was extremely independent, had no problems in terms of any of his capacities to be able to engage in business, was very actively involved in business. And I remember when my my uncle, who was my, my, is my dad, was my dad's oldest brother, he decided to give up uh, the checkbook to my father. And I remember my father telling me about this amazing burden that he felt that he was going to take care of Uncle Rube and what that felt like for him. And what I, what I heard my father talking about was not just being so concerned about Uncle Rube, but how difficult... I knew it would have been for my dad to be in that place and have to give up the checkbook to me. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Sure. It's that loss of autonomy that just devastates people sometimes. So now, what would you recommend that every middle-aged person or younger person do right now about their own future and perhaps about their own parents' future to address that need for better advanced planning, especially as we think about the worlds of financial abuse and exploitation and our interest here at the ScammerCast in preventing scams and frauds. What, what kind of steps and thinking need to be in place for that? Well, I think legally is where we have to start because nobody can do anything for anybody else financially or to protect them, actually, unless they have the legal permission to do so. Right. right. Oddly, knowing this, most people don't do estate planning. Mm. We sort of use the term estate planning to cover everything from having a will or a trust to... Uh, an advanced health care directive to a durable power of attorney for your finances. But it's really tied to the hesitation that Nicole addressed a few minutes ago about fear of death, unwillingness to face our disability or potential incapacity. Uh, on that note, let's take a short break. This is Curtis Bailey, your co-host at ScammerCast.com. We'll be right back. It's time to take a break during this episode of the ScammerCast. Have you liked our effort on Facebook? Visit the link via our website at scammercast.com and be sure to share any of our informative articles with your friends and family. It's all about education and protecting our seniors. We'll be right back. A recent study found that most older adults fear running out of money during their retirement years, even more than their fear of death. A trust can be an effective way to manage and protect your assets while you're alive. Now, many folks believe that trusts are only for rich people. They are not. Midwest Trust Company of Missouri, located in Clayton, Missouri, offers professional trust management for clients all across the country. Using Midwest Trust is a great way to know that someone with experience and integrity will manage your wealth objectively. Naming Midwest Trust can provide you with peace of mind in knowing that you or your parents will not be exploited financially and lose all of the assets acquired during a lifetime of hard work. Midwest Trust will even work with you or your parents' own financial advisor. Don't let fear of running out of money drive your life. Contact Midwest Trust Company today by visiting the link to their website at scammercast.com. The Discipline to Grow the strength of experience, the ability to adapt. Values that endure. Midwest Trust. There was a day when the villain was easy to spot. These days are different. Today, scammers impersonate their victims' loved ones and make up an urgent situation. I've been arrested. I've been mugged. I'm in the hospital. And plead for money to resolve it. At Western Union, we want to help. We remind you to never send money to people you haven't met in person and always verify before you send. You work hard for your money. 
Don't let a few minutes with a scammer separate you from what's taken days, weeks, or even a lifetime to work for. Western Union. Move money for better. Join in a unique, interactive experience as we put you inside the mind and heart of the law enforcement professional and delve into the culture of policing. Hi, I'm Mike Wilkerson from the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network, where I've reviewed hundreds of police procedural television programs and movies. But the question remains, does Hollywood get it right? What does it really feel like when you search for a suspect inside an abandoned building? The fear. The adrenaline. The unknown. Law enforcement training for the arts, or LIDA, is an experience like no other. Fingerprints. Ballistics. DNA. Our team of professionals have numerous years in law enforcement to include those with experience in the United States Secret Service, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the FBI, the United States Military, along with other local, state, and federal entities. Our unique facilities offer the same interactive courses that the police themselves use to train. This will be an experience of a lifetime that you'll never forget. Check out the details now at LITAConference.com. That's L-E-T-A-Conference.com. And sign up for the upcoming convention. Seats are limited, but we're eager to see you behind the thin blue line. LITAConference.com. L-E-T-A-Conference.com. Go behind the badge. Welcome back to ScammerCast, your headquarters for the education and prevention of scams against our elders. Let's dig back in with your hosts, Curtis Bailey and Art Maines. Welcome back. We've taken a short break. This is Curtis Bailey, your co-host on ScammerCast.com. And this is Art Maines, your other co-host at ScammerCast.com. And we are talking today with Carolyn Rosenblatt and Dr. Nicole Davis of AgingInvestor.com and AgingParents.com. Now, in this part of the show, we're going to be talking to you a bit about AgingInvestor.com. And so we'd love to know, Carolyn and Nicole, what got you interested in, in this particular specialized area of elder care? You know, in the course of dealing with families, we were invited to do some client education days for large financial institutions. And we also gave a talk to a group of financial advisors. And in doing so, I realized that the institutions and the advisors did not know very much about aging, and they have this wave of aging clients that's coming up. So we thought, gosh, let's find out what's going on with them that they seem to have this gap. Well, as it turned out in our research, going through what we thought was educational material for them, we found very, very little. And what we did see was inadequate in our minds. And we thought, you know, let's find out what they're supposed to be doing about these aging clients because elder abuse, financial elder abuse particularly, is such a massive issue in this country. So we looked at what the government wanted them to do. We looked at what they were doing, and there was a huge chasm between those two. We decided that we were going to try to provide some information because it dovetails very nicely with our very extensive work with families. These are the same people who are their clients, theoretically. So we got to work, and we've created some online educational courses for them. We consult with them. We speak to their groups. We attend their conventions and present. And we're finding a lot of interest in the education from their point of view because they're uncomfortable, you see, with clients who are developing diminished capacity issues and such. And they don't really have the education in their financial knowledge about what to do. So that's how we got started. It's also the reality that most of the people that obviously went through extensive financial education didn't ever study neuroscience. (laughs) And all of a sudden, because our population uh, obviously is uh, living longer and longer, they find that the scope of their job, of which I'm sure none of them ever intended, is to now be somewhat of a witness of the aging process of humanity, uh, their clients specific, and and now being somewhat challenged in overseeing the financial welfare of their clients and 
and wanting to make sure that their clients uh, don't make stupid decisions and are safe. It seems like most financial advisors I've spoken with are most interested in just making sure that the client's money lasts. They're not thinking about all this other stuff. Indeed. And making the client's money last includes the perspective that the client is not going to be doing ridiculous things like giving millions of dollars away that they can't afford when that money is needed for their care. Right. Part of making the money last means that it doesn't get taken by predators, whether that be family, outsiders, caregivers, or whoever. And that is the missing piece. They're not conscious enough of how to protect the client when all of these forces are at work trying to get the client's money away from them. You know, we've seen statistics all over the board, generally speaking, about uh, how much money is lost by seniors in scam situations or financial exploitation, you know, anywhere from $3 billion up to $36 billion reported in the latest TrueLink study. Uh, do you guys have a sense as to how big the problem of financial elder abuse is specifically for financial professionals? I think financial professionals are just like everyone else. We are all facing this problem in society because it is so massive. And when you look at the fact that Elders typically have some sort of nest egg that they are vulnerable because of their subjectivity to undue influence by people who they believe they can trust. Mm -hmm. And the fact that some of them are developing cognitive decline as we speak, you put all of that together and the advisor has the same issues that we all do. Their clients are losing money, their clients are being abused, and they are not really clear about the signs or what they can do about it. What they can do about it and how they can keep these older investors safer is really what we talk about with them. And I don't think ever in any of the meetings, Carolyn, that you and I have had over the many years that we've had a financial advisor, our financial advisor initiated a conversation with either of us if, in fact, as we grow older, If either of us start to lose our ability to make sound financial decisions, what would we prefer to do? Or what actions would we want our financial advisor to take? We've never had that conversation. Yeah, they don't initiate that. They don't bring that up with their clients. The the usual way of things is that the advisor, whether they're an independent in a small office or whether they work for a huge wirehouse, a big firm, they wait until something happens. They wait until the client is going off the rails, so to speak, And then they decide maybe they better do something. (laughs) It's a little late then. Yeah, the typical thing is that they escalate. They call it escalate, which means they kick it upstairs to somebody with authority to make decisions about what to do to protect the institution or them from liability. And if there is no path forward, in other words, if they don't have someone taking over decision-making for that older investor, they get rid of the client. Yeah, you know, Carol. They're losing money, too, because the fees that are associated with managing that client's assets are going out the door, and that's not good for them. And if they have a long-term relationship with the client and know the client, it's not good for the client. Right. We're trying to address that and help these forces come together, the client in need and the advisor in need of tactics, strategy, and information. Well, that's so interesting because, uh, yeah, I don't think the majority of financial advisors do initiate that kind of conversation. And, of course, being a a lawyer and uh, being a litigator in in previous part of my career, just like you, Carolyn, the the first thing that came to my mind is, isn't that a uh, liability professional responsibility kind of issue if they're not doing it? What do you think? Well, the law does not make advisors do anything just yet. There is a considerable momentum in a move and some model rules already posted by regulatory agencies that suggest that they should become mandated reporters like doctors and nurses and healthcare providers and social workers and so on. In other words, if they see elder abuse, they're, they're probably going to have to report it. But that is a reactive plan. In other words, wait until the money's gone and then call the police or call adult protective services. We think they can do much better and it's not exposing them to liability, if they try to take action ahead of time by involving family or involving a significant other if family is, in fact, the source of the potential abuse. There is a proposal which has been put out there in the form of other model rules uh, to require that all advisors have a third-party contact in their file. And the most uh, innovative rule that I've seen suggests more than one 
third-party contact in the file, so that if Sunny Boy, mom's favorite, is in fact the abuser, that they can call someone else because, you know, a lot of times the elder names their favorite child or whoever, and that person, unfortunately, then turns out to be the one who is taking money from them. Sure. That makes so, so much sense to have that. The issue really hinges on whether or not they have to do something after the fact. But we think that it's an ethical responsibility for advisors to take up the cause of their vulnerable clients and develop a plan in place in advance. ahead of time so that these issues can be looked at early in the game before the, the person has their money stolen or they unwittingly give it away when they can't afford to do that. And that's where we spend our time, trying to get into that place that is proactive, helping them develop policies that will enable them to know what to do and not be exposed to liability. They've got a strategy. It's reasonable. It, it involves their legal and compliance departments for approval. They can protect themselves. Sure. You know, this also brings up brings up an issue that, that we didn't talk about in the very beginning when you asked about our formation of aginginvestor.com. And I just wanted to mention that the mission behind aginginvestor.com that came out of the cumulative careers of both Carolyn as a geriatric nurse and an elder law attorney and my career in the last 44 years uh, in clinical psychology, primarily in working with older adults and families, was that we really believed that if we could get to enough financial advisors to help them see that they needed to be a part of the solution in stopping financial elder abuse, that financial advisors compared to any other professional that most older adults interface with throughout their lives were in a critical, critical position to do something about stopping financial elder abuse because they typically knew their clients over time and had that long-term relationship and were able to observe changes in their client to the level of understanding uh, their ability and capability of dealing with finances based on the history of decisions that they had made with them. This is not something that a medical doctor in a three- to five-minute visit on an annual basis is going to pick up. That is for sure. That is for sure. And I think you're right that a financial professional is in that unique position to be able to know their client and begin to see the signs of cognitive impairment. And so what do you think about the fact that there is no legal recognition of financial self-harm? I think we do have laws. We have things like self-neglect, but we have in this society a sort of general understanding in the law that you're competent until the court finds you incompetent and that you have a right to destroy yourself if that's your choice. Mm. And that unfortunate sort of thinking that really pervades our legal system does not take into consideration what we know now about dementia because it is a gradual process of decline and you can be competent and have dementia for quite a while. But what is eroding behind the scenes that's invisible is your financial judgment. That's the first to go. It is, and and this is something that we've talked about here at the ScammerCast. I've talked about in my book, and it is a real problem when we look at either financial elder abuse or financial uh, predation crimes, as in scams and identity theft. I mean, uh, impairments in judgment, impairments in ability to recognize these things are a real problem. So you're trying to raise this awareness and encourage financial professionals to become more proactive, if I'm hearing you correctly. Is that right? Exactly. And, you know, they don't know really where to start, so we took all of the recommendations that we had researched from the regulatory agencies, and those include the Securities and Exchange Commission, the internal self-funded regulatory body of the financial services industry, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, FINRA, Mm -hmm. and another organization, NASAA, which is Securities Administrators, and all of them have jointly issued a paper. And that paper essentially says they want the financial professionals to make their aging clients safer. And they go on for, you know, 20 pages or whatever, describing how some firms are trying to do that. Essentially, they want 
and industry professionals to have a senior-specific program, a policy. But they don't really tell people how to do that. So yeah. there we have the problem. You know, do this, but we're not going to give you any specific instruction, and we're not going to make it mandatory. <laughs> okay. so, yeah. You know, isn't that the government for you? Yeah, isn't that the truth? kind of theory. Right. So what we did was take their their suggestions, and we created a 10-step template so that if somebody wants to create a senior-specific program, they at least have a place to start and step-by-step way to do that. And it's not, you know, overly complicated. At its centerpiece, there is one really important document that we created with a team of lawyers. And that document enables them to address the privacy question squarely and in advance. Because they, a lot of times, may see a problem and they've they've got this uncomfortable feeling about the client, but the privacy rules say you're not supposed to reveal your client's confidential information to anybody. Does that mean that financial professionals cannot voluntarily report an issue about financial elder abuse? No, the, the, the agencies want them to report abuse. But when Good. it comes to talking to family, which would be the way you address it, right. outside of law enforcement or before it becomes a you know, problem that the, the person's lost a million dollars to some scam, you know, you've got to get somebody involved in trying to get the checkbook away or the access to the account away or the authority as a trustee away. Whatever mm-hmm. the strategy is, you have to have a way to contact the people who could make that happen. Or even more importantly, if you're seeing some of the subtle signs that people are starting to lose their judgment when it comes to finances, at least that would be an opportunity if you had that third-party agreement that you could call in family and suggest that there be an evaluation done, some psychological testing that can be done to determine whether or not, in fact, either that we're seeing clear signs of diminished capacity, whether or not someone has some early signs of dementia, which we can test through using psychological testing. And would you share with our listeners a couple of those signs of diminished financial capacity just for their, uh, maybe for review, could be for their information? Sure. The first early warning sign of Alzheimer's disease and other dementias is memory loss. And an excellent resource for helping any listener tell the difference between so-called age-related changes in memory and Alzheimer's disease, the most common form of dementia, is the Alzheimer's Association website, alz.org. That's alz.org. From that website, you can see a description of the difference between ordinary memory loss and dementia-related memory loss. For example, let's say I forget where I put my car keys. Has that ever happened to you? (laughs) (laughs) I resemble that remark. Yeah, no comment. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Then you remember later, right? Yes. But you don't forget what your keys are for. That's the difference. difference. Or I came to visit you last week and we had a great chat and you might be temporarily waylaid and say, God, I don't remember that you came by. Oh, yeah, 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 now I remember. Because someone prompts you. A person who has been developing dementia will not remember later. They don't have contextual clues. Right. They can't remember things in the context of things. That association is gone. You can't prompt them to help them remember because that memory's gone. So short-term memory loss, not what happened 50 years ago, which they might recall perfectly, but short-term memory loss, what happened today, last week, this month, whatever, those those are the problems. And there are many others. I think when you see someone having difficulty following the conversation, you know, you're chatting and, and they just kind of go off in space and can't keep track of it all. Right. That's a clue. Those are what we call cognitive signs. There are emotional signs mm-hmm. where the person seems to be very volatile when they didn't used to be. They get angry for no reason. They're irritable. They were always very placid or vice versa. They used to be a real pain and now they hardly say anything. Mm-hmm. They don't seem to have any moods. Any change from normal in their overall emotional presentation is a clue. It can be from a lot of other causes, but it's right. consistent with memory loss. Then you put those two together and you start seeing a pattern. The other clue would be behavioral changes. The person is normally very tidy, and all of a sudden they start looking unkempt. Maybe they're not bathing. They're not eating properly. They've lost some weight. 
you know, those kinds of, of changes in what's normal for that person are other clues. Right. And as a fourth area, besides cognitive, behavioral, and emotional clues, we count abuse as another clue. Mm. Because sometimes when a person has been abused, that itself is a suggestion that they may have dementia. Okay. I would also refer our listeners here to our episode of the ScammerCast with Stephanie Rolfs Young, Wrapping Your Mind Around Cognitive Impairment. That's a pretty in-depth interview with her from the Alzheimer's Association. So for any of our listeners who may want to go more in-depth with this subject, please check out our episode at ScammerCast.com. Carolyn, you've already mentioned a a couple of things that financial advisors can do, i.e. if they're able to report it, report it have a plan ready to address the the privacy issues ahead of time. What other recommendations do you make to financial advisors to help them deal with suspected financial abuse? From the day they sign up that client, or now because they're conscious, they need to have those third-party contacts in the file, and they need to establish a relationship with them. Now, in our case, because we're in this business, we made sure both of our kids know our financial advisor. Good. If, and I've given my children a grilling so they know <laughs> what the signs are, <laughs> you know. Yeah. They have no excuses. I have I've tried to teach them, and they're both millennials. So what we hope is that if they saw something going on, they would call the advisor and say, look, mom's losing it. we got a problem here. Or if the advisor is talking to me and gets the sense I'm going off the rails, that my advisor is comfortable calling my kids. Not only have I given permission for him to do that, but they have a relationship. They've already met. They've discussed a few things. They know something about our finances. That relationship and that reaching out to family is a crucial part of prevention because we all have to work together to stop this problem in its tracks or thwart it when it's already underway. And if we don't have a plan for how to do that, it's just going to keep getting bigger as our population ages. So I think it's just empowering financial advisors to be willing to have those most difficult conversations and bringing these kinds of topics up with their clients. And we know that there's great resistance of many people, including financial advisors, to talk about these kinds of subjects in advance. So what do you do when you get the it's none of your business answer? <laughs> yeah, and that's what you get a lot. We have some it, videos in some of our courses that demonstrate right. what, the, what the older person is going to do. It always makes people chuckle because it's so real. You know? It is. So, so um, what do you recommend? I, it's important that, that we persist because most people may not want to relate to the idea that they could become cognitively impaired, Right. but there's no escaping their ability to, to relate to the possibility of having a stroke, mm-hmm. falling and breaking something, having a heart attack, because these things are happening to their friends and colleagues all around them. Mm-hmm. These are regular occurrences in their lives. And so we always start the conversation with we really need to have a plan in place in case you were to fall or mm-hmm. in case you fell and banged your head or in case you had a stroke. Remember how your neighbor, Bill, down the street had a stroke and he had to go to a nursing home and he couldn't talk? You know, we use real-life examples if we can, especially in family if they exist. And we try to help that person see themselves in the place of the individual who became impaired and say, we can't help you unless we know something. We have to know more. Mm -hmm. We also found that it seems like there is a universal among most parents, which is that most parents don't want to be a burden to their children. Right. And we found that as being a very powerful pain point and leverage point to deal with older individuals when it comes to talking about these most personal subjects, uh, specifically about their finances, and, and helping them clearly understand that if this information is not forthcoming, the potential consequence of that will be that you will become a burden to your family. Mikol, do you, do you find that that desire on the part of a parent not to be a burden is stronger or is it outweighed by the desire to maintain autonomy and decision-making control? It really it really depends, but I also think that part of, of what you're talking about has to do with the fear mm-hmm. 
that most people have, which is that if I'm going to relinquish control and obviously render myself somewhat vulnerable, is it then an opportunity that my kids are going to take advantage of me or anyone else? Sure. Yes. So now we're talking about issues of trust. And as you gentlemen know, you know, the uh, lovely dysfunctional American family uh, <laughs> raises its ugly dynamics when it comes to dealing with these kinds of topics. And often there's a long history, often that is involved in lack of trust and poor communication that, that comes about when we start talking about these most critical issues. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very much, very much. And I think most financial advisors, because most individuals are very conflict adverse, don't want to bring this kind of subject up because they're afraid they're... Their clients are going to fire their butt. Yeah, yes, yeah. I mean, sure. that's that's bottom line. They're they're afraid to lose a client and and definitely lose the opportunity to continue the relationship to the next generation, right? You got it. And the kids don't want to bring it up because they're afraid their parents are going to put them out of the will. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a everybody stands around score zero. Yeah, everybody you know walks around with a standoff. You do it. I don't want to do it. Yeah, that's a that's a vicious. <laughs> right. that's a, this kid, you do it. That's yeah. a vicious right. circle right there. Yeah. Yeah, and then the predator swoops in and goes, "Ha ha! No <laughs> yep. one's watching. Let me see if I can engage this." I can do it. I can do it. Yeah. Right. There you have it. Yeah. yeah. So you, you've mentioned uh, several times the resources you have available. What uh, what resources do you offer to financial professionals? I know you've mentioned videos and written material, but what else do you offer to the financial professional that needs some help? Okay. Well, we have six online on-demand courses. These are approved by the Certified Financial Planning Board in Washington, D.C. for continuing education. They have to get a certain amount of continuing education, as most professionals with licenses of any kind do. So those six courses uh, are within that category of approved. They address things like best practices for managing clients with diminished capacity, communication challenges that we've just been talking about, Yes. intergenerational wealth transfers and why they fail, and the family dynamics issues are addressed there. So those are some of the things that we offer. We have a book called Working with Aging Clients, a guide for legal, financial, and business professionals that is published by the American Bar Association, and it gets into a lot of the specifics about financial capacity in some detail, and it's not long, 150 pages. That's published by the American Bar Association and available on their website, soon to be available on Amazon. Good. We have it on our website as well. And for client education, which is something that the financial professionals want and sometimes they don't feel comfortable doing or not prepared to do, we have my other book, which is The Family Guide to Aging Parents, and that also addresses elder abuse. There's a chapter on elder abuse there and what families can do, and it talks about also the diminished capacity problem and how subtle that is for families to observe. Mm. We're also often looking for opportunities to do public speaking in any venue where we get to be able to maintain uh, and follow our vision of uh, educating financial advisors on more of a massive level. We also have a blog on aginginvestor.com, and there's an article stream there with a lot of short pieces that pick up parts of these subject areas and get into those. We tell some real-life stories. Um, we have a YouTube channel, and we illustrate things like power of attorney and that sort of thing for some of the basic information for people who want to kind of get, you know, a few minutes of instruction and they're done. Sure. So those are resources. We have a lot of little ebooks and and letters and things that we send out for people who subscribe. Uh, and they can sign up at aginginvestor.com to get those pieces as well. And I can vouch for those. I signed up at aginginvestor.com, and I really appreciate the emails that I get from you guys. I learn a lot from you, and so I can heartily endorse yeah. your information and what you offer. Now, don't you also have a blog or contribute to a blog on Forbes.com? I do. Uh, I have been writing about the issues affecting our aging parents and, and our clients for some time. And uh, some of those were picked up by the then um, executive editor at Forbes that I was invited to write some articles about driving and getting the car keys away, one of my favorite topics, because mm. in my former litigator life, I was also a personal injury lawyer and dealt with a lot of car accidents. So mm. the driving issue is close to my heart, and I've written about that. So I was invited to write for Forbes, and after that article, then another and another, 
And then I was offered a blog. So I started a blog on Forbes called AgingParents.com in, uh, I think, 2011 it was. And I've been writing ever since. And there are articles with all kinds of real-life situations. Whenever a client presents something or I get a phone call with something interesting, I try to share that with the public so that, you know, people can learn from whatever mistakes others make. And you can follow me on Forbes.com at Aging Parents as well. Fantastic. Yeah, we will certainly post links in our show notes uh, to uh, all of the ways that you can interact with Nicole and Carolyn at aginginvestor.com, as well as the Forbes link. Nicole and Carolyn, uh, as we wrap up, are there any last thoughts uh, or asks you have of our audience? I do have another book coming out, which I'm just finishing now and is in the editing process. Nicole and I are doing it together. Mm-hmm. It is specifically for financial professionals, and it posits all of these questions from their point of view and answers them in a way we think really affects them most specifically, because they are, as we all have been discussing, in a most unique position. And I'm sort of begging, urging, and pleading with the financial <laughs> services people who might be listening to please get more involved with the aging clients you have. If you're stuck, let us help you. Look at the resources. Read from other sources, if you will. But please try to help these folks. They are really vulnerable, more so than you might realize. We all need to join hands to help them because they are ourselves a few years down the road. Wonderful. And so with that, we want to say thank you very, very much to Carolyn and Nicole from agingparents.com and aginginvestor.com. And uh, we invite all of our listeners to leave us a comment at scammercast.com or on our Facebook page. And if you liked our episode today or any of our episodes, please tell a friend and share the information so that together we can help protect the aging population from various predators within and without of their families. Until next time, this is Curtis Bailey, your co-host at ScammerCast.com. And this is Art Mange, your co-host at ScammerCast.com. And we want to thank you for listening and remind you to listen, interact, and help us hammer the scammers. Thanks for listening to this episode of the ScammerCast, your headquarters for education and protection of our elderly from scams worldwide. Be sure to visit us at ScammerCast.com, where you can send us your stories and tips, as well as send us your feedback, visit our Facebook presence, and more. Thank you for listening to this episode, and until next time, Hammer the Scammers. The information we share in this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should never substitute for appropriate legal, financial, or medical advice from qualified professionals. Always consult with an attorney, physician, or financial professional for the correct advice for your particular situation.